In the midst of the solemnity of our worship this day, it may seem strange, but I've slightly had Saturday Night Live on my mind. And the reason for this is that, uh, like some of you, I've recently read Tina Fey's uh, article in The New Yorker on lessons from late night. Tina Fey was a longtime character on Saturday Night Live, and if, you, if you're not familiar with her from television and what have you, you've probably seen her because she was the one that in rather good spirits, channeled Sarah Palin during the last presidential election. But in this article, she recounts Meet Her Meeting, her first meeting and subsequent relationship with the legendary producer Lorne Michaels. And in 1977, she was called for an interview because the, it was understood they were looking to diversify the cast of Saturday Night Live. And as she put it, only in comedy, by the way, does an obedient white girl from the suburbs count as diversity? She goes on to describe her first meeting and then what she learned from her relationship with Lorne Michaels, reflecting on the difference, comedic differences between uh, men and women. But I bring this up because she calls herself obedient, an obedient white girl from the suburbs. And obedient here is a sort of self-denigrating put-down Obedient people are not very funny, and they're not very edgy, and they're not very interesting. And we associate uh, obedience with things that aren't terribly attractive, with being submissive, conforming to the law or social norms or authority. Obedience is related to obeisance, uh, sort of bowing and scraping. It's just not particularly something we aspire to. And when we do hear about it, the way we talk about it and think about it, it's pretty utilitarian. Keep the law be obedient to the law or you'll get in trouble. Or it's pretty submissive or manipulative, carrying favor. Obey the teacher and she will like me. I had a Presbyterian assistant once who was by definition, tradition, and, and in intuition nervous about bishops. And he came to our annual conference of the diocese and he did not hear our bishop's intended humor or indeed deep irony, when, he thanked, when the bishop thanked us for our obedience. This uh, was lost to my friend, who I believe never went to one of those conferences again. <laughs> when Tina Fey characterizes uh, women comedians over against men, she says the ones she knows are all da dutiful daughters, good citizens, mild-mannered college graduates. And she says maybe we women gravitate toward comedy because it's a socially acceptable way to break the rules. Bear that in mind as we remember that in our tradition, obedience is considered a virtue. Monks make vows, many of them, of poverty, chastity, and obedience. And how can something as dull and as mechanical as figuring out the rules and following them, how can that be a virtue? Matthew is very interested in Jesus' obedience. And it begins with his baptism, when Jesus says, let it be so, for I must fulfill all righteousness. And throughout the gospel, Matthew's interested in Jesus' obedient response to what the higher righteousness of God requires. Now, clearly, this is not simple obedience to some kind of law. It's not it's in the law anywhere that Jesus has to be baptized. Clearly, that to which Jesus is obedient is something different, something else, but that something includes the gracious gift of identity that Israel is given in the law. Laws tell us something about who we are and what we value. 
So this theme of obedience to God, Jesus' obedience to God, Jesus' obedience to God's word in the here and now uh, that Matthew's interested continues in, in this story today of the temptations. So obedience is a virtue. It's been corrupted, and not least by those holding on to power so that instead of making us strong by demanding our obedience, they exploit our weakness making us cravenly submissive at worst. Obey the law as we interpret it, say the authorities, and you will be safe. Obey the law as we interpret it, cried the leaders of Jesus' day, and you will be safe. I hear the same falsehood in calls to trust the wisdom of the proposed Anglican covenant. Be obedient, and the communion will hold together. It's all about power, and it's not about real obedience. Because real obedience is not about submission to authorities. Although from time to time that submission, freely chosen, might be part of what it is to discover the people we were created to be and might be part of living toward that vision. But it's not the point. Real obedience is the kind of obedience out of which Jesus can live with real clarity and come to real clarity as he submits to the baptism of John, and as he continues with the mythical story in the wilderness where he resists our all-too-human temptations, where he remains obedient. He resists our temptations, the one first where we think we'll be more who we are if we can just consume more, eat more, have more, buy more. You deserve it. And he resists the temptation to think that we know who we are by being good servants, by putting naive trust in institutional claims to salvific power. And he resists the temptation to think that we're most fully who we are when we're in charge of everyone else, when we have dominion. And he's obedient to his identity as a child of God, not being distorted by these temptations And he acts out of that same clarity when he overturns the money changers' tables. He acts out of that same clarity when he challenges craven interpretations of the Lord that would keep the poor in their poverty. And he acts out of that same clarity as he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, is there some other way before his passion and his death? See, obedience is bound up with living and acting with integrity living and acting toward what is of ultimate worth and what is most true about who we are. I met an English monk once. He'd been an academic, became a monk, community of the resurrection, later in his life. He'd been a teacher at Cambridge. And in a sermon, he said, obedience consists of discovering what you most truly and deeply are, or better, what you have it in you to be and then of being loyal to the insight that you've thus received. In fact, we might say we do talk about obedience, but we tend to talk about becoming who you are, becoming who you were created to be, living toward what really matters and so on. We're getting at obedience. But obedience has a bit more meaning that makes it a good word to keep. Obedience makes it clear that the source and the goal of our life, it's outside ourselves. The source and goal of our life is God. We live towards something other than ourselves. 
And that makes us odd, or it makes us eccentric. We live towards something outside of ourselves, and obedience reminds us of that. It's not just about being the person most fully who you believe yourself to be, but living toward something beyond ourselves. Now, this season of Lent marks all those times when we seek to strip away everything that might distort our vision so that we can see ourselves and see others more clearly than before. And you know this, as, you find, as we find our vision being less distorted, so we can choose to live with greater integrity as the people we were created to be. So what seemed so important yesterday, what seemed like brilliant insight, or like courage, or like cutting-edge humor yesterday, will seem like mere rule-breaking tomorrow. In our fasting and in our prayer, and in our almsgiving, we seek to return to that place where we can pursue true and real obedience as the children of love that made us for love. One more thing needs to be said, one caveat. And that is that just as Jesus had to exercise his obedience to God in relation to those around him, even if that relation was primarily marked by conflict, so it is with us. We are necessarily societal beings, and obedience to our understanding and insight about who we were most fully created to be is not just an individual matter. If we are to flourish, we must be concerned for the flourishing of others. And what that does is rules out the idea that God can tell me to go and bomb an abortion clinic, and then I rush off and do it. Or it rules out demonizing entire religion under the guise and dignity of congressional hearings. Flourishing is for everybody. And obedience as a virtue must be a consequence of our Lenten observances being seen in the gift of our being able to live more connectedly with everyone else, more connectively with our environment, more bravely, more freely, more generously. Those are the fruits of the Spirit, the fruits of our Christian practices, and the fruits of real and godly obedience. We confess the depth of our sin. We confess the distortions that make us less than we are. We confess that we are not God, And then we are forgiven, and we are raised as odd people, eccentric people, raised to this new community of forgiveness and grace and the power of love. This obedience, this obedience is the obedience of Christ. It's true obedience, and it's itself the capacity to be obedient, itself a gift of love from the one who made us for love. Let us respond to the gospel in silence and in prayer.